I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. I'm here to have conversations. Real, honest, authentic conversations. The kind we aren't supposed to have anymore. I interview anyone I find interesting, from left to right to everywhere in between. I work independently in order to have the freedom to say what I believe and speak to whoever I want. Staying independent has allowed me to speak freely and to tell the truth, no matter how unpopular, for many years now, and I wouldn't trade that for anything. We have seen over the last few years how deeply compromised big media is and how willing mainstream journalists are to twist facts and hide the truth to sell a narrative. I opted out of mainstream media and a traditional career path for a reason. I want to come to my own conclusions and not be compromised by financial, political, ideological, or corporate limitations. I refuse to trade my integrity or my free speech for a paycheck. But that means I need your help. I rely on donors and patrons, so individuals, to support my work so that I can continue to do what I do to cover uncovered stories, to discuss unspeakable issues, and to share information the mainstream media won't. If you appreciate the kinds of conversations we're having at The Same Drugs, if you wish to support my work and access full video interviews, a great way to do that is by becoming a subscriber on Patreon, that's patreon.com slash Megan Murphy, or on Substack, where you can become a paid subscriber at www.meganmurphy.ca. You can be sure not to miss a single episode there. You can access subscriber-only video content. You can engage with the comment section, subscriber-only chats, and regular AMAs. And you can keep up with my writing as well. You can also, of course, follow The Same Drugs on Spotify and support the podcast directly there by clicking the support button on The Same Drugs podcast page. And finally, don't drink the Kool-Aid. You may have seen me in a very stylish shirt with that very timeless message online, and you can get your very own at our Same Drugs merch store, which you can find by going to www.meganmurphy.ca and clicking the shop tab. Thank you so much for supporting Conversations Outside the Algorithm. Today on the show, I am speaking with Rob Henderson, the author of a new book out this month called Troubled, a memoir of foster care, family, and social class. Rob, thank you so much for joining me on The Same Drugs. I'm so excited to talk to you. I've wanted to talk to you for a really long time, and I just, I think I've I've prepared way too many questions for you, but we'll do our best. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. Thanks, Megan. Yeah, it's great to be here. Um, so first of all, congratulations on your book. It's an amazing accomplishment, of course. Um, well, thank you. I'm going to show people who are watching and for people listening. It's called Troubled, a memoir of foster care, family, and social class. I just, I feel like this book was, I mean, first of all, it was so well written. Like I really enjoyed reading it. Um, and I think it's such an important perspective. Um, and one that isn't told very often. Um, and I mean, I, I grew up working class, but I had a very different upbringing than you did, which I think is interesting. And you know, one of the things that I learned from your book and that I've been learning from your work in general, I've been following your Substack for a little while as well, 
is that, you know, stability, safety, security, uh, a like stable family unit makes a huge difference. So, you know, I did, I did have two parents um, and I, I had a stable family life. So the fact that we didn't have as much money as my peers and we grew up in a housing co-op and had an old shitty car instead of like two nice cars and we didn't go on vacations. You know, I still had a good and healthy, not that my family was perfect, but childhood. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I'm interested. I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your childhood for people who haven't read your book yet. When did you, for example, I mean, I think one of the defining aspects of your childhood was the foster care system. How old were you when you, you ended up in foster care? Uh, yeah, I was, I was three years old um, when I entered and yeah, I, well, I mean, so, so it's, I, I opened the book. I mean, I, I have a preface where I, you know, attempt to uh, outline the the context for the book and why I'm writing it. And, you know, there's a lot of citations to research and survey data and statistics and those kinds of things. So I think it's important that we, you know, understand that this is, it is a very personal story. It's about my life and, you know, my experiences through foster care system, uh, later being adopted into this, you know, dusty working class town by this working class family and you know, sort of more blue collar environment and what families increasingly look like in those uh, regions of the country. And then, yeah, you know, sort of my outsider, you know, detached perspectives of, you know, the upper, upper middle class later when I arrive in, in, in college at Yale, but, you know, I, I opened the first chapter with, um, you know, graduation when I graduated from Yale because I, you know, it was, a, it was a difficult process trying to write this book because I didn't want the reader to feel just, it is a pretty, like the first half of the book, it is pretty heavy, a lot of it. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, I tried to be just as raw and authentic as I could, just every sort of memory, make it as vivid as possible, the way that I remember it from my upbringing, my childhood. Um, you know, I, I wanted the reader to know that, you know, yes, we're about to go through some very heavy, uh, experiences and my early life in foster care, but that, you know, ultimately, yeah, it'll, it'll end up okay. Um, but I didn't know that, uh, that's the thing I didn't, I personally didn't know. Uh, I tried, you know, I have this line somewhere in the book that I'm, I'm I try to be kinder to the reader than, than real life was to me. Uh, because when I was three and I was taken from my mother and put into the foster care system in Los Angeles, I didn't know that things were going to end up okay. You know, I didn't know that things were going to end up the way that they were. Um, and so what is what is that life like? What are the emotions and the experiences associated with that life like when you don't know whether things are going to be okay or not? And so, you know, my first memories are with my mother when I was three years old. Um, you know, I'm clinging to her. We're in a slum apartment in Los Angeles. We were homeless for a time. We lived in a car. We eventually settled in this little apartment and the police come and take me from her. She had been very addicted to drugs. Um, I'd never met my father. Um, later, uh, she was asked by a forensic psychologist who my father was, and she said she had no idea. Um, 
apparently there were reports from neighbors and people that, you know, around around the apartment complex that my mother would have just random people, you know, random men come in at all hours of the day and night exchanging favors for drugs um, and just completely neglectful of me, um, you know, possibly abusive, although I, I have no memories of that. Um, but just a lot of neglect where she would tie me to a chair while she would get high or, you know, do her thing. And then eventually the neighbors called the police because they heard, you know, some kid was screaming in this place, in this apartment. And so the police came and saw the state of the apartment, saw that my mother was not in a position to be a parent. And so they arrested her and put me into the foster care system. And yeah, I spent the next, the next five years or so in seven different homes in Los Angeles and it was a really, um, I mean, it, it was difficult the first, well, when I was taken from my mother, it was extremely difficult. Um, and I remember those experiences very vividly of clinging to her and then having to let her go. And then being put in the first home, that was a very unfamiliar environment. And I was too young to really understand it. Um, I didn't really know whether I'd see my mom again. I didn't really, like, I just didn't understand the situation I was in. I just have these sort of sensory memories that I convey. But then when I'm taken from that home into a different home, and then it starts to, you know, then I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a little bit older, I'm like four years old, five years old, and they start to understand that this is my life now of just being put into different homes with different kids. Um, I'll never see my mom again. And that was, you know, it was just really uh, emotionally um, devastating. But then by the, I don't know, the third home or the fourth home that I moved into, the my emotions became very blunted. And, you know, it was not a conscious strategy, but it was probably just a sort of automatic, instinctive coping response to just protect myself from feeling that, you know, the overwhelming intense emotions each time of having to transition into a new home with new people, new foster siblings, new foster parents over and over. And, you know, some people have asked me, why is this the case? You know, why, why are kids moved so frequently in the foster system? Um, why not just put them with a family and just let them be there? Um, and the issue, one, one reason for this is that oftentimes when a kid is placed into care, it's a temporary sort of safeguard. And usually, or at least oftentimes what happens is that one of the children, one of the child's relatives will re-enter the picture. So maybe the kid is, you know, raised by the mom, the mom is addicted to drugs, but then she sobers up and re-enters the kid's life and can take him back. But if the kid stays with one foster parent for too long, they can develop a strong attachment or a bond to the foster parent. And so the way that the system has resolved this is to just basically keep moving the kid around repeatedly so that they never develop a strong attachment to any particular parent. This also creates issues on the side of the foster parent too, that if you're a foster parent and you have a kid living with you, say for a year, and then suddenly, you know, one of the relatives says, okay, well, I'm the relative, I, you know, I'm going to take care of the kid now. It's possible that the parent might feel attached to the kid and be unwilling to let go of the child. And then there can be custody disputes and so on. And so the system just adopts this kind of strange strategy of creating intentional instability in a kid's life, but perhaps with good intentions. But for someone like me, where no one knew who my father was, and my mother was, um, she was from South Korea. She entered the U.S. as a young woman. Um, and then when she uh, 
was arrested. She was subsequently deported. I was a U.S. citizen. I was born in L.A. And so they just put me into the system. And then I what I suspect happened was just my file kind of just got absorbed into the bureaucracy and no one actually paid close attention to my specific case and the fact that there would be no relative to reenter my life. And so I was just, you know, repeatedly put into different, different, different homes. And then eventually at some point I saw uh, uh, a child psychiatrist, which all foster kids are, are mandated to do at a certain point if they've been in the system long enough. And the, this doctor was like, you know, this kid needs to be adopted. Like, why has he been in the system for so long? We need to like find a permanent placement for him. And, uh, and then, yeah, eventually I was adopted, but only after, you know, repeated and needless instability, um, which yeah, did, did create difficulties for me later. And then, yeah, I was adopted, um, into this, you know, basically this, this working class family in this, in this, um, kind of rural town in Northern California, uh, when I was seven, almost eight years old. And this is a big question, but how did this impact your mental health? I mean, you talk about some pretty serious anxiety that you experienced when you were really little that a lot of kids are, are lucky to not have to experience. Yeah. I mean, one uh, one point I make in the book is that, you know, I've met a lot of pretty fortunate people. I mean, by now I've met, you know, affluent people who have attempted to imagine, you know, they've at least, you know, made the attempt to try to think about what it would be like to be poor, mm -hmm. um, what it would be like to not have money. But I've never met anyone who has attempted to imagine what it would be like to grow up without their family or without their parents or without a sort of stable and prolonged um and predictable uh kind of environment where you know where you're going to be day to day or week to week and you know who your caregivers are you know who your parents are um so it was really hard for me early on uh i mean initially the the anxiety and the dread and all of those negative emotions would come in waves they would be very sharp um and then later it would just be this sort of dulled um enduring kind of feeling that was ever present. Um, and, you know, to some extent, it probably did etch itself into my physiology. I mean, you know, I've, I've read enough research in developmental psychology now to understand that, you know, those early life experiences from when a child is roughly during the first five to seven years of a kid's life, um, those experiences play an outsized role in the trajectory of a kid's sort of uh, uh, emotional system and sense of self and, uh, ability to form healthy relationships and all of those things. And so for me, I mean, you know, I, I did have some issues with anxiety with, um, you know, I had a, I had a really bad temper. I mean, I still have, you know, a, a temper, but with the benefit of age and so on, like I'm able to, to contain it. But when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, you know, issues with anger or sort of, mood instability, um, with later with depression. Um, and yeah, you know, it's funny. So I, I took this 23 and me DNA test because I, um, you know, I, I'd never known who my father was and I was curious to just sort of get the, the ancestral breakdown. And I learned that my, uh, so my mother, I mentioned she was from South Korea, my father, who I, I had no idea my, my father was, uh, was uh, Hispanic. Um, he was Mexican. And I didn't know that. Um, but the other thing I learned from that 23andMe um, 
test. You know, it also offers like sort of your your health and your traits and all of these other, um, you know, all, all of these other results. And one was that I had, a, a, according to 23andMe, I have an average propensity for depression. I'm not more genetically prone to depression than the average person. Um, and yet I, I suffered from it quite a bit uh, in my early adulthood. And, you know, it's it, to a lesser extent now. And to me, you know, basically this indicates this is, you know, this is probably not a solely genetic uh, issue, at least for me. It was, it did have a lot to do with never really having a strong attachment in childhood, never really developing trust and bonds and having a, a reliable caregiver. Um, and so, yeah, by the time I entered my teenage years, I mean, it wasn't even then it was like, I was like smoking, you know, I, I, I was drinking beer when I was five in the foster homes. I was Crazy. drinking tequila when I was nine. I was smoking cigarettes and weed and, you know, we, we would, we would take pills. I mean, initially the pills, we would like, just like raid a medicine cabinet and just see how many, like whatever cold medicine pills we could take before we started to feel funny or like right. drink some cough medicine. But then later, you know, like once we entered middle school, high school, my friends and I, we would get whatever, like generic Vicodin or something from neighbors or friends um, and just like find ways to sort of escape from ourselves of just sort of blunting the emotions and the feelings. Yeah. And, you know, I think there was a lot of thrill seeking, a lot of fighting and violence and, you know, racing cars or, you know, all of these ways to, um, you know, feel something other than what we were currently feeling, sort of chasing some, some other kind of uh, altered mental state. Um, and yeah, at the time, I didn't understand this, though, as a teenager or as a kid, you know, it's just doing something that feels fun. You know, that's kind of the extent of the thinking is like, oh, this was fun or this was interesting or this makes me feel different or funny or whatever. And so I'm just going to keep doing it. But of course, in hindsight, I'm, you know, I can see that a lot of it was just trying to like a flight from my own feelings. Right. Which, I mean, as I understand it, I think a lot if not all addiction is in some way rooted in childhood trauma and trying to escape essentially, is that accurate? Do you think? I mean, all maybe, you know, I could, I could imagine some, you know, addiction specialists maybe quibbling, but I, I would probably, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, probably mostly true. I mean, yeah, because I do know people, well, I don't know, like addiction, I guess, yeah, with, with addiction, that's probably right. Because I know people who, recreationally do a lot of drugs and like they grew mm -hmm. up pretty well off and they're okay. And they never really had any real struggles, but they, they don't really seem to have that, like the same level of, um, yeah, the same level of like biological addiction to the point where they're allowing it to ruin their lives in the same way. Um, usually, yeah, that's rooted in something, some, you know, severe abuse or neglect or abandonment or something early on. And that's definitely what I saw. I mean, not just for me, but for a lot of my friends or um, the people I grew up with. Um, and yeah, it's, uh, I mean, this is, yeah, this is another point I, I make in the book is that, you know, we could, I mean, if we did more to address sort of instability and dysfunction and deprivation and all this stuff that affects young kids, I mean, we could prevent, you know, more we could have prevent a lot of these kids from ending up in the places that they end up in, whether uh, in prison or rehab or on the street. I mean, prostitution. Yeah. Yeah. Prostitution or um, yeah. Like 
because all of those things cost the system money, right? Whether it's prison, whether it's homelessness, whether it's addiction or prostitution or crime or what have you. I mean, ultimately, like these do cost society in some form and we could address this, um, you know, before the age of 18, rather than trying to clean up after the age of 18 and try to figure out what to do after that. I mean, I had two friends in high school who were, uh, who, who, yeah, who went to prison. I had another friend who was shot to death. I mean, these are like, this is like increasingly the case, even in, you know, even in environments like that weren't as chaotic as, as what I experienced in foster care. Um, in a way, when I was adopted, I had kind of this front row seat into sort of the deterioration of what were formerly relatively stable neighborhoods and families and environments, um, you know, but yeah, it's just uh, sort of more and more families outside of that kind of educated class are um, facing severe difficulties. Yeah. And I mean, like starting to drink and use drugs and take pills and all that stuff when, when you're so, so young, it is really amazing that you've made it out okay, you know, that you're not a drug addict. Um, but you did, of course, end up in, in rehab for mm-hmm. a little bit. How old were you when you went to rehab? Um, I was 24. Is that right? 24. You know, it's funny. The way that I, I remember it is um, at least like, so it was 2014. So it had to be 24. It was um, the treatment center that I was in uh, for alcohol addiction was it, it was housed within a hospital and the hospital waiting rooms because we'd have to like walk through different wings of the hospitals for appointments and stuff and the televisions in the waiting rooms uh were playing cnn and at this point cnn was obsessed with that missing malaysian airliner oh <laughs> i don't know if you yeah. remember this this yeah. fact, that was like literally 10 years ago that was 10 years ago that's insane yeah um that was 10 years ago but um yeah, I remember this. And I think that was 2014 when that uh, that that airliner suddenly vanished or whatever it was or, or crashed or something. But yeah, that was like all that was on the TV all the time. But yeah, that was um, that was a six week inpatient program. And yeah, it was tough. I mean, I left this out of the book. I don't know why. I mean, it was just going back and forth with so many edits. But there was at one point when I was in rehab, um, there was this older guy who was there, too. Um and I basically like told, you know, told my life story up to that point at 24. Um, and this older guy uh, in uh, this, I mean, it was essentially like this kind of group therapy situation where he listened to it and he had his, his arms crossed and he like kind of nodded and he was like, you know, the foster homes and everything else. And he was like, like, that's that's three tours in Vietnam. Like that's the like kind of equivalent on someone's kind of psyche. Mm-hmm. Um like a little kid, like living through that kind of environment, you know, it's kind of the the equivalent of, you know, three, three um, deployments uh, to Vietnam. And I, I don't know that, that, that stuck with me. Um, I don't know if it's true, but it. Um, well, I, I mean, it, yeah. And as far as impact on your mental yeah, health, biology and yeah. all of those things, I think there's probably something to that. Um, and so, yeah, that was uh you know, it was difficult to even go in the first place, but I knew I needed to. I mean, I was having difficulties with drinking. I mean, by that point, I, I mean, I was 24, but I've been drinking for nearly 20 years. <laughs> I, mean, I, you know, it was kind of, you know, on and off and, you know, just, 
by the time I entered the military and was 20, you know, when I turned 21 and was able to just drink as much as I wanted. And I just did. Um, and, you know, I, I probably had a bit of the behavioral propensity or biological propensity from, from my mother who was an addict, but, um, you know, a lot of it, I think was just in response to kind of dealing with those early life experiences. Did rehab help you? What did you learn in rehab or what did you get out of that? Mm. Did it? I mean, I guess it helped. I mean, it was like a moment. It was six weeks. Uh, and it was like a moment for me to step back and reassess what I wanted in a more sort of conscious way. I mean, I'd kind of been living day to day and like week to week up, up to that point. I mean, not really thinking of my future in a serious and defined way. It was just like working and hanging out and drinking and partying and not really considering like, where's my life going? What do I want for myself? What are my goals? You know, I made this decision to enlist when I was 17 and, you know, it wasn't especially well thought through, but you know, then, you know, by that point, the, the air force was making all my decisions for me where I was going to live and what I was going to do and what I, you know, what uh, duties that I had. And so then in rehab to just take that breather and that step back and to realize, um, yeah, I was unsuccessfully trying to forget my early life and to, you know, I wasn't really taking serious responsibility for myself or my relationships. I, at that point, hadn't visited home for, you know, any special occasions or anything, Christmas, anything. I just usually lied and said I had to work. Um, you know, my my mom would ask, you know, are you visiting you know, the first couple of years? Are you visiting for Christmas this year? And I, oh, no, I have to work. And, you know, for all she knew, for all my adoptive family knew, that was true. I mean, you know, people don't know anything about the military. And I knew that they didn't know. So I knew they would accept that as a valid excuse. But it wasn't true. I mean, people do go home for the holidays. Like, you can, like, take leave during December. It's not like a, you know. But I just didn't want to. I didn't want to um, see them. I just wanted to disconnect from it all or run away from it. And it wasn't working. So yeah, I mean, in rehab, you know, speaking with people, speaking with counselors and with other people and realizing like, you know, I need to be more honest with myself, with what I want, with everything that I had gone through and to, yeah, just take greater responsibility for myself. And I guess to some extent, I, it wasn't a, it wasn't a conscious decision. I don't, I mean, maybe to some extent it was, but I was using my life, my childhood as a crutch to some extent, like as an excuse to indulge in bad behavior or like, yeah. I, you know, I've been through so much, I'm allowed to drink or I'm allowed to do whatever I want or I'm allowed to, you know, like be a bad friend or boyfriend or whatever, bad son. I can just, you know, I can treat people how I want because I wasn't treated that well and whatever. And to realize like, that's not a good way to live. Um, and yeah, I mean, I landed there in rehab after having, um, how my like work wasn't I mean work was going okay but I was starting to dislike my job more and more my uh one of my friends at work had recently committed suicide and that hit me pretty hard um especially because you know, it, it was like just completely like he was he seemed like a happy person to me and then to to realize that he wasn't and I think I connected with that on some level that that sort of putting on this you know this this persona of, of being someone but internally struggling 
And then, um, yeah, then my girlfriend had dumped me essentially by this point too. And so a lot of bad things were happening and, you know, it was just drinking way too much and needed to address some of the, you know, some of the things that were going on in my life. So ultimately it, it was a sort of the, the beginning of me turning things around and, you know, it was a setback. It was, it was embarrassing. Actually, I remember being embarrassed that I had to go in the first place, but right. ultimately it was necessary. Right. I think you wrote about the military teaching you the difference between self-motivation and self-discipline. And I thought that was interesting because I think that sometimes people think like if they aren't motivated to do something, maybe they shouldn't do it or, or they think that their problem is that they can't achieve what they want in life because they lack motivation. What was it that you learned about that? thought process or that idea yeah well yeah that was um yeah this distinction between motivation and self-discipline was one of the most important lessons i learned when i was enlisted in the air force because you know i uh, i had not to that point really had serious goals or long-term ambitions or something and the military um essentially like taught me that you can get things done even if you don't feel motivated. And that motivation is just a feeling. Do I want to do this? Do I not? Whereas discipline is taking action regardless of how you feel. And initially in the military, it was imposed from top down, meaning like, you know, we don't care how you feel. We don't care if you feel motivated or not. You're going to do these things. Like that's just, you know, you can feel however you want, but the actions will, you know, I won't be able to tell if you're motivated because you're going to do them anyway. Right. And so it was initially sort of imposed from on high. And then gradually, once I sort of integrated the lessons um, into myself that, yeah, okay, I don't really feel driven to do this. I don't feel particularly motivated, but I'm going to do this anyway. And that's often what separates successful people from unsuccessful people is doing things you don't want to do, like doing things even if you don't feel motivated to do them. Motivation actually isn't that as, as strong of a factor as, as you might think. Um, and, you know, I think like a, a simple example that a lot of people can relate to is like going to the gym. That yeah. some days you really don't want to go to the gym, but self I don't want to go any day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's never any day that I want to go to the gym. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I understand that. Uh, but yeah, yeah. the self-discipline is you got, yeah, go, going anyway. And often like, you know, when you find that once you're there, it, it becomes easier. Um, yeah. And you, you feel better after. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, that's, that's what success is, is just a series of, you know, stringing together a bunch of days of doing things you don't want to do. And then after a while, you know, you start to look better or feel better or your goals start to take shape. Um, and yeah, I mean, that was a huge, like the military in general just taught me so many useful lessons like that of, I mean, the real one was the self-discipline one. I mean, it, that's sort of the umbrella lesson because, mm -hmm. you know, I was in a state of, you know, between the foster homes and the drama in my family and everything, it was just a lot of disorder and chaos and the military imposed this very useful structure. And I started to realize like, oh, you know, once I'm in a predictable environment where I can do things and sort of understand day to day how things were going to look and who was going to be around me and what, what the expectations were of me that suddenly, um, you know, I could, I could actually, uh, like exert effort and see my potential shine through and all of those things. And, 
um, yeah, it was really, it was really useful, especially for, for myself at age, I was 17 when I enlisted. Um, I had to have my adoptive mom sign what essentially amounted to a permission slip to let me go because I was underage. Hmm. Um, and so I was really young and really like immature and unfocused and, you know, it wasn't an overnight transformation. I mean, I was still, you know, for the first couple of years, you know, bending rules and getting into fights and doing stupid things, but it was within that contained environment um, where I knew there was like a boundary that I couldn't cross, even if I wanted to, um, because I was in such a, a rigid environment where you know, there was just constant monitoring and oversight. Um, and so it allowed me to sort of mature and develop and grow a bit older and eventually reach the point where um, I could start to make smart decisions for myself. Right. And you, you talked about how sort of silly you thought it was that, you know, college students are treated like kids when they're 20, whereas often poor kids and, you know, obviously kids who enlist, for example, are expected to take on these very, very adult responsibilities and to grow up a lot faster. Um, I, I suppose, I mean, did you start to experience that when you were in the military? Did you sort of notice that beforehand? I think I noticed it before. Um, I mean, you know, I had I had two jobs when I was in high school. I was a dishwasher and a busboy at a restaurant. And then later I was a bag boy at a grocery store. But even before those, like, you know, those were jobs where I paid taxes. But before that, I was like, you know, like, working uh for neighbors or working for friends or like stacking firewood or helping to clean gutters or um you know i had like these these guys in the neighborhood who um you know they were contractors but they you know often they had like old appliances or just like a bunch of garbage they had to take to the landfill and so they'd hire me and pay me like whatever 10 bucks to just drive along with them and help them like unload garbage or whatever and yeah so i mean i was really working i don't even know since i was like nine or 10 or something, mm -hmm. um, these kind of odd jobs. Um, and yeah, so by the time I was like actually old enough to get a real job, I mean, I guess that's like, that is one thing that, uh, that I'm grateful for, for that period was like getting a job was still considered this like cool thing to do of like making your own money. And, um, I think now there's this weird, like, I don't know if it, like, if this was just unique to my case or if this is a new generation thing or something, but I think like, you know, at least from speaking with people and I don't know if this is like a class-based judgment, but I get this feeling that like people would feel embarrassed to be a teenager and like working at a fast food job or something. And I didn't experience any of that. Right. When I was, it was like a normal thing, like good. It was almost cool. Like, oh, you have a job and you're making money and that's great and whatever. But like, I don't know, is it, is it this like a new phenomenon now that now if you work a whatever a minimum wage job, this is something to be embarrassed about? I don't think that's true. I, you know, I definitely didn't when I was a kid. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I remember when I, like, I got my first job as soon as I could legally work. Um, and before that, I did, like, babysitting and stuff like that um, around the co-op for my neighbors. Um, so I, I got my first real job, I guess. I would have been 15 or 16. I can't remember what the legal age now is in Canada. But I was really excited to get a real job. I don't, mm -hmm. I didn't like it once I had it, but 
really have any other choice. And yeah, I wonder now. I mean, people talk shit about Gen Z a lot, including myself. But um, <laughs> I'm very judgmental of the younger generations. I am too. <laughs> but I can't tell. I can't tell if the the judgments that I and other people make around them, particularly around things like work ethic, like laziness, feeling sorry for yourself, thinking you're a victim, those kinds of things. I can't tell I, if that's like a class thing or if it's actually specific to this generation. Yes. That's such that's such a good point. I mean, because that that's something I think about too, which is like you know, oh, kids don't drive anymore, kids don't, you know, because there are statistics actually indicating this, that the number of kids who have their driver's licenses is declining, the number of kids who are working is declining. And I wonder, like, is this, is, is like the middle and upper middle class responsible for that decline? Um, and if you visit working class or poor areas, like teenagers might still be working and still driving and still doing all those things. It's just that me, and it sounds like maybe you too, you know, as you sort of experience upward mobility and the kinds of you know, complaints you hear about young people are made by like, you know, fortunate people whose kids aren't working or the people they interact with or the people we're exposed to. Because yeah, I don't like I haven't, you know, I don't talk to teenagers in Red Bluff, California anymore, but I do now interact with college students or other kinds of young people. And, you know, they just come from a very different environment. So I actually don't know that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I definitely noticed there is a sort of a maturity gap, between, at least from when I was growing up to through to college that, yeah, I mean, working and paying bills and paying rent and all of those kinds of things, even driving. I mean, like no one, like, you know, no one, college students, at least like the kinds of college students who go away to college, which is actually not a typical experience, mm -hmm. uh, go away to some leafy campus in New England or whatever. And then they don't have like a dorm. Anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, you can just everything is within your campus bubble and you don't have to work a part time job to help pay tuition or, yeah. you know, those kinds of things. I mean, it's yeah. But that yeah. still exists. My sister went to a state school, yeah. my adoptive sister. And she she was a barista part time, like you know that's like the typical college student experience. Actually, if you go to like some flagship state school or whatever, like a lot of those young people actually do work part time jobs. But the people who like exert outsized control on like discourse and whatever, like these are the people yeah. who went to fancy colleges who didn't have to work from their high school and college years. Yeah, I mean, I <laughs> I still have like a pretty big chip on my shoulder around class stuff, I think. But I mean, it's it's very noticeable when you are in college. And so, you know, when I started going to college, I barely passed high school. Like I probably should have failed high school. I feel like my teachers did me a favor by letting me pass. Um, so when I started going to college, it was like a community college. I couldn't get into a university. And I was taking night classes because I was working full time and I had to pay my rent. And so it took me like 10 years to finish a BA. <laughs> right? And yeah. eventually I had to, eventually you can't work a full-time job if you're going to actually complete a degree. And I went on to do a master's degree and stuff like that. But, and so I worked a whole bunch of different part-time jobs to piece things together. But it's amazing how little upper-class people understand about that. And, and you see that, from the right too, you see that from the conservatives who are very judgmental about debt forgiveness and things like that, because you know they're like, you should get a job and work your way through university. I'm like, yeah, you work your way through university and you go into debt. <laughs> like that's what I had to do, unless of course you get scholarships and things like that. But I, I went to I went to journalism school, so I did. I first of all I did a 
He majored in women's studies, very practical. Um, and then I did a master's degree in gender, sexuality, and women's studies. And while I was finishing that master's degree, I started a master's degree in journalism. Um, and the journalism program is set up so that you you can't do it part-time. You have to do it full-time. So you're expected to kind of be there all day, Monday to Friday, which was impossible for me. And I always had to leave early to go to my job. And, and eventually I dropped out, partly because I had to work and I couldn't afford to keep going, but also because my goal of going to journalism school was to get into journalism. And so as soon as I started to be able to work in journalism, I was like, okay, I don't really need this degree anymore. But it goes to show how, like who's going into journalism and how they're getting there. Because not only is it set up so that you have to go full-time, but you also have to do a full-time internship so you also have to go work full time without pay. Um, yes. And yeah, so pretty much all of the kids there were, first of all, younger than me. Not There was a few adults, but most of them were younger than me. And they were living at home and their parents were paying their way. And like, no wonder journalism is so screwed up now. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, I think the whole like the unpaid internships that, you know, they pay you in you know, getting a line on your resume or they pay you in prestige, but like, you know, you can't eat prestige. You can't like, how do you, you know, like, yeah, the, the whole like unpaid summer internship thing just blew my mind when I first learned about it and how, I mean, because, well, you know, you mentioned, yeah, what is it? Gender, women's studies. Very. I mean, I studied psychology, not the most practical thing in the world. I sort of uh, wish I had studied psychology, but anyway. Yeah. Like I, I wanted to do psychologist. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I I worked in um like 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 psychology lab as a research assistant. They didn't pay. Like I had to like find ways to like fund my summers because like in order to get into a good PhD program, you usually have to have a bit of research experience working in mm -hmm. a lab, and like you know basically you know you like most of these don't pay. There are very few programs for summer psychology research internships that will pay you. Um, and so, yeah, most of these, it's like, you know, some, some like rich college student who can afford to take eight weeks and just like go live some, like you have to rent an apartment, you have to do all these yeah. things and if you don't have money, like, how do you do it? And so, you know, I was, I was lucky in a way. I mean, I looked, you know, I searched very hard and I, I managed to find something, but yeah, it was like, you know, I, re I remember thinking like, you know, I, I was an adult by this point. I was, I graduated college when I was 28. So, you know, you mentioned 10 years to get a bachelor's degree. I mean, it basically, you know, for all intents and purposes, it took 10 years for me too. Um, but I was like 27, I think, when I did that, my summer research internship before my senior year. And by that point, I was like old enough and I had had some money saved up and like I was able to do it. But I was thinking to myself, like, what if I had, you know, somehow, you know, through some alternate, you know, parallel universe, if I had gone to a school like this at age 18, but from the same kind of poor background, how would I like pay for this? You know, like mm -hmm. I wouldn't know where to begin. I would have been like too young, too naive, like not really understanding. Yeah. Um, so in a way, I was fortunate to have been a little bit older and a little bit more, you know, what I had a breadth of perspective to understand. But, you know, I, I started to feel like, yeah, what is uh, some like kid from some like impoverished background who manages to go to a good school and needs you know, like, yeah. So, so you mentioned like, that's why journalism screwed. This is why academia screwed up. Like it's the yeah. same thing yeah. where you have like people who are on the academic track and you see, 
you know, PhD students and, and, and young academics who are also, you know, many of them have the same kind of outlook as, as journalists and kind of narrow-minded perspectives. Yeah. Yeah. And most of whom have never had to work a real job outside of academia. They just went into academia and then became academics, which I think warps your perspective. Of course, you've never really operated in the real world. As far as mm -hmm. I'm concerned, academia is not the real world, but I mean, I, th I think a lot of people think about class in terms of money. Mm -hmm. And when I talk about class uh, to people who are didn't grow up poor or working class, they say the same thing. And so they think about like, I think in a, I think class mobility obviously is real and accessible in places like America and Canada more so than in other places. But at the same time, like it's not. It, it's so much bigger than just money. Like it's so much bigger than just income. Um, and I know you, you like you referenced a bunch of research about the differences between affluent people and working class people in terms of ethics and morals and <laughs> approach to socializing and all these things. I, mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, that would, that's my my book, I, I I talk about my personal observations. It was just sort of firsthand interactions. But then, yeah, I, I I was reading a lot of research. I majored in psychology, so I read a lot of like the social science research and class based differences and how people think about yeah moral questions and you know basically like you know one one interesting research finding was that you know upper class people tend to take a more sort of calculating perspective. They're more likely to endorse the idea that the ends justify the means. I mean, a lot right. of, you know, basically, uh, yeah, they're, they're very sort of strategic in how they think about things. And sometimes this can be useful, but I think, you know, they're, they're also more likely to be transactional when it comes to relationships, mm. uh, you know, business relationships, friendships, romantic relationships. I mean, it is like this kind of ledger that they carry around. I mean, I remember, I remember I had this interaction with this guy um, from the Yale Law School. Uh, he was a naval officer. And so he, you know, he had like, you know, lived in the real world and done real things. But, you know, he was like from a more affluent background. And naval officers do tend to be actually among the branches. Naval officers do tend to come from a more sort of affluent uh, families. And then, yeah, he was at Yale Law School uh, after his service. And I remember he gave me this piece of advice where he said, um, you know, while you're here uh, at this place, you know, you want to you want to come away from every interaction with something like some kind of material advantage or benefit of whether it's a contact or, uh, you know, an avenue towards an internship or, you know, a, a connection to some professor or a high profile figure or what like basically like right. don't just like make friends and have a good time like you should always be angling to get something from everyone <laughs> and I was right. like, what, like now it's kind of like that's just how you know like people are like that in this kind of segment of society but at yeah. the time it blew my mind like I can't just like <laughs> talk to people <laughs> like I have to like always have an angle and always like sort of like be a a social shark in that way um and it feels like such an unnatural way to think it and feels a little bit life too well, yeah it just feels it. a little bit contaminating and but once he told me that it did help to put some puzzle pieces into place like when i'd watch people interact with one another or like this kind of you know there was a bit of sort of fake 
fakeness, this sort of fake persona, this duplicity. Um, you know, and I, I had this conversation with a friend that I graduated with. Um, and he, yeah, he said this, he was like, in high school, I was never like that. But then when I got to Yale, it was like, I just learned, like, you have to learn how to be fake with people uh, mm -hmm. in order to basically sort of survive, um, socially speaking. And so what else did I, I mean, you know, the, the constant status anxiety was pervasive. I ha I came there from a very different background perspective. I thought like, First, I never thought I would go to college in the first place. So the fact that I even stepped foot on campus was a surprise to me. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, wow, like I, I'm basically, I'm going to be okay, right? Like, you know, no one goes to fancy college like this and then whatever ends up homeless, like things are going to be fine for me. And I, you know, I mistakenly believed that that was kind of the general feeling that most people would have. But instead it was like, people were just constantly striving for the next thing, you know, law school or medical school or this internship or that or this job or you know, it was just the kind of, it was just a relentless, um, this kind of relentless, like internal vacancy that a lot of these young people felt about like striving and, and that they weren't whole unless they were perfect in the way that they had defined for themselves and really unhealthy. Um, so yeah, there's like a lot of sort of backbiting and sniping and duplicity. I give this one example of how, you know, some students would claim that, investment banks were, you know, symbols of capitalist oppression and that they were evil. And then you would see those same students at a recruitment session for Goldman Sachs. And, you know, like that was, you know, I, what I, what I came to believe about that was that these students were essentially attempting to undermine their rivals. Right. So if they could convince right. me that banks were evil and I, oh, okay, I'm not going to work there. Then that's one less person they have to compete with for these extremely competitive internships. Um, and so like, they were using moral language almost as like a weapon. They like weaponized morality in order to advance their own professional interests. Uh, and yeah, I'd, I'd never seen people sort of play, you know, like the kind of social reputational game at such a high level. It was, it was almost impressive in a way, but also like very grim that these, like this is the, you know, this is the ruling class. This is the future ruling class. And you know, so I, I do my best to sort of share these observations and maybe help to illuminate, you know, why, why there are certain trends that catch on the luxury beliefs idea, like how this arose. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of it is sort of based on a lot of the sort of status anxiety and insecurity of uh, this upper strata of society. Right. I mean, and you, you also referenced a study that found that upper class people um care they score lower on measures of empathy, empathy mm. which i thought yeah. was interesting and really justified my my lifelong dislike for rich people <laughs> <laughs> i'm trying yeah. to break that prejudice because it's not true i've you know i i obviously i know rich people that are very nice so mm. <laughs> stop saying yeah. that but i yeah i mean i think that's interesting and i think that must connect to your concept of luxury beliefs yeah well yeah i mean that was an interesting study i mean it's because you hear a lot of moral language from this segment of society sort of upper middle class upper class people who you know they they want to demonstrate their moral credentials and 
talk about how they're helping this group or that group or saving the planet or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And yet personally, yeah, a lot of them, you know, at, at least on average, statistically, they do seem to feel sort of less, you know, less regard for other people. Um, and so the, yeah, the luxury beliefs idea, it was, I didn't really, I didn't put, uh, create the name until I was in grad school, but the idea was kind of floating around in the back of my mind since arriving at Yale of people who were promoting. So luxury beliefs are ideas and opinions that confer status on the upper class while often inflicting costs on the lower classes. And, you know, I repeatedly ran into people who would say something that sounded interesting or bizarre or made people feel morally superior but then, you know, if you extrapolate from that and consider the consequences for society as a whole, um, often they have very negative detrimental effects. Uh, one example, a recent example, um, was the defund the police idea. Yeah. Um, that there was a survey from YouGov in 2020, which uh, collected data from a representative sample of Americans. And when they broke the data down by income category, the highest income Americans were the most in support of defunding the police. Um, and you also saw this, like, you know, there were surveys out of like Minneapolis and New York and Detroit and found that white Democrats were the most supportive of defunding the police and black and Hispanic uh, uh, residents were far less in favor of it. They were like less likely uh, to be in support of it. Um, and Things like like obsession with inequality versus poverty. There was a study which found that uh, people, U.S. graduates of, of college, were more concerned with salt, you know, uh, reducing inequality, whereas people with only a high school diploma were more concerned with uh, reducing poverty. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, like inequality is like in and of itself. I I don't not you know I don't necessarily think it's it's like the worst thing in the world. It's like it's poverty. That's the issue. Like people who don't have enough. Uh, to eat or they don't have shelter or they don't have clothes. But inequality is like this buzzword. And I think a lot of that it stems from sort of upper middle class people who are angry that they're not in the 1%. They're only in the top 10%. Mm-hmm. So they're at the 90th percentile, but they're jealous of the people in the top 1%. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they're the, you know, whatever, the sons and daughters of millionaires who are mad that there aren't in a family of billionaires. Um, right. And a lot of the yeah, anyway, so so luxury beliefs idea. Another study that I found interesting um, that definitely reflected what I saw uh, on campus at, and I still see at elite university campuses uh, when I visit is um, two different studies, one in 2020 and one in 2021 found that um, upper class Americans are more, uh, they, they desire status more than lower class Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, there's a there's a sort of an inverse correlation. The higher status and the more wealth someone has, the more likely they are to desire status and to desire more wealth, um, which mm-hmm. is kind of counterintuitive. You might think that people at the bottom of society would be the most likely to desire status and wealth. But actually, when researchers collected objective measures of wealth and status, so level of education, occupational prestige, earnings and so on, people who uh, were at or near the top of those different uh, metrics were the most likely to agree with statements like, it would please me to be in a position of power over others, or I enjoy having influence over other people, or I would like to, you know, basically exert 
uh, my desires on others. Um, and, you know, this, this makes sense. I mean, you, when you interact with a lot of people who are actually objectively speaking, doing very well in their lives, but there's this very strong sort of social comparison orientation where they're constantly looking upward, you know, mm -hmm. like, yeah, they're doing well, but they're, they don't have the, the, the internship or the job or the, the amount of money that they think they should have compared to those around them. And this can fuel. And so, yeah, this can fuel a lot of envy. And so the luxury beliefs idea was born out of this, that at a certain point, it became a bit gauche to exhibit your status in society with material goods alone. It's still, people still do it to a certain extent, but not as much as uh, in the past. Um, I cited a book um, from Thorsten Babelin, The Theory of the Leisure Class. Um, and I, I quote some bits of it uh, in my book. And Veblen wrote his book in 1899, and he described how, you know, the upper class of his day, you know, basically you could tell right away from looking at people who was rich and who was poor. You know, the rich would wear tuxedos and evening gowns and top hats, and you could just visibly tell right away, oh, that person's rich based on how they're dressed and their appearance. Whereas today, it's less true. If you walk around the street of any major city, it's not necessarily clear who the richest people are. Um, and so then by the middle of the 20th century, there was a French sociologist named Pierre Bourdieu who wrote a book uh, called Distinction, a Social Critique of the Judgment of Taste. And he basically, you know, he had this framework, he coined this term cultural capital. He basically um, wrote about how the affluent will convert economic capital into cultural capital. So they'll take their money and then spend it in ways to perform their class status um, through intricate and expensive tastes and habits. And, um, you know, at that point in the mid 20th century, learning a lot about wine or art or furniture or uh, kind of these these arcane areas of knowledge uh, and the vocabulary of how to communicate it in a sophisticated way that would exhibit class. Today, people still do that to some extent. But now my claim is that you're not really learning those things as much anymore in elite universities. You're not really learning whatever the intricacies of the of the great books or about poetry or wine or art or those kinds of things. I mean, you can if you want, but really the message that you absorb from the institutions that train the future ruling class is like political correctness of like how to communicate about certain groups, which terminology to use, how to communicate about them, um, you know, how to sort of exhibit in a sophisticated way that you are uh, a supporter of this movement or that movement uh, and at the right time. And, you know, when people ask why, you're able to sort of enumerate the reasons for it. And, you know, this is a, a costly indicator of your social position. If you're able to express luxury beliefs and then express them in the right way, you know, you're basically subcommunicating. I went to an expensive college. Yeah. You know, I spent time around a lot of other educated people. I have the kind of job where I can, you know, sit around and whatever, like scroll social media and I listen to the right podcasts and get my information from the right legacy institutions and I read the right bestsellers and I know, you know, what, how, how to communicate and what to think about the issues of the day. That was another shocking thing about 
college too, was just how obsessed people are with like being informed. And I know you're a journalist or a, you know, recovering journalist or, (laughs) but, but I know like, and I like, I I respect like good journalists and good journalism, but it was just like such a shock to me. Like it was a culture shock for me because where I grew up, like the news wasn't really that people cared about local news. People kind of cared what was going on in our town, but being informed about like global events and what was going on politically and having an opinion about everything that was occurring or, mm. you know, keeping up with the latest fashionable op-eds or this big splashy piece in the Atlantic or whatever. I had been before. Uh, I went to college and suddenly it's like, it's pervasive. And I'm like, oh, like this is um, another element of class that goes under discussed. You mentioned before yeah. how people think of class as being about money. It's like, you know, you can, you can win the lottery, but that doesn't necessarily mean you join the upper class. Um, you're still going to be the class you're in. You just have a million dollars now. But if you want to join the upper class or have your children join the upper class, you have to perform the class uh, mannerisms and express the right tastes and views and so on. Yeah, and to be able to engage in those conversations about the the correct events that you're supposed to be following closely. And I mean, you also pointed out, which I thought was interesting, was that you learned that it wasn't important to know the details of an event so much as to know what to think about the event. Yeah. So like, I don't know what happened. You know, I was, I was uh, at Yale in 2015 and then I don't know things would happen. I don't know, like, like the, the Bataclan massacre in Paris, was that in Paris? Yeah. In France. And, you know, so like ISIS and Islamic terror was a big thing or like the, the presidential election with Trump or whatever, like all of these, you know, major events were occurring and it wasn't like, you know, you, you couldn't just like say this happened and here's the time it happened and here's where it took place and here's whatever, who moderated the debate or whatever. It was like, here's what this person said and here's what it means and here's what to think about it and here's the context and here's, you know, what all of the, you know, the, the respected prestigious pundits are saying about it. And yeah, it was really, I mean, what was really interesting is like, I would hear the same, like, I would hear the same talking points. So like I'd go to office hours and talk to a professor and somehow like, you know, politics or news or something would come up and they would say, you know, hit the talking points from like the New York times that morning. And then I'd like, I'd go hang out with some students, hear the same sort of set of points. And then I, you know, go somewhere. And it was like, Oh, like everyone's kind of reading the same, like three or four prestige media outlets and Mm -hmm. kind of communicating the same things. And I'm like, okay, so it was useful for me because I knew like, oh, I'm, I should, you know, at, at the very least, I should have some cursory understanding of, of like, you know, what the news of the day or the week is. So I could at least understand what people are talking about because the first semester in the first year, yeah, people would look at me like I was like, like, who are you? Like, why don't you know this? Or like, are you like, you know, like, are you okay? <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, how do you not know this is happening? Like, you know, we just thought I was like this, you know, unplugged weirdo or something, but I just didn't know. Like, you're supposed to be reading this stuff. Okay. Yeah. Do you think that class mobility is real in in America? I I just was thinking about this conversation I had on Twitter recently, um, which is probably not the best reference, but, um, you know, I, I think I was saying, I'm trying to remember, I'm paraphrasing, obviously. I think I was saying, you know, and to me, this is obvious. Like, it's easier to make money if you have money. 
your parents own property, you're way, way, way more likely to be able to own property versus if you grew up in a family that didn't own property and didn't have money and didn't have access to investments and so on and so forth. And this guy was arguing with me who I think works in investment something or other, um, investment management or something like that. And he was like, that's not true. Rich people or rich kids are not as likely or not more likely to grow up rich than working class people. You know, anybody can get money or lose money. And I was like, I don't think you're really understanding what I'm saying or how this works. <laughs> so he, he was adamant and he was very condescending to me. <laughs> he, you know, like, like you're so stupid. And I'm like, okay, well, I think I know that <laughs> a little bit about this. I think I know how much easier it's been for, you know, my peers who grow up upper class or middle class and whose parents had property and were able to either either properties passed down to them or help them with a down payment um, to be able to start out with something with good credit even. Um, so I mean, I, again, like I do, I don't, of course it, it's possible for people to move yes. from the working class, the middle and upper oh. class. We oh. see it often enough, but. Yeah. Okay. So that's, I mean, that's like, it's, it's possible to like improve, like objectively improve your life circumstances. Like I would never deny that. I mean, that's okay. So that's interesting. Like, you know, I, I hope, you know, I try to make this point clear in the book. Like I did not want this book to be like a, you know, hey, if you just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and work really hard, then, you know, you can go to great college and live a good life, too. You just got to, you know, put your mind to it or something like that's not what this book is. Mm. Um, you know, I describe like the setbacks and the difficulties and the, you know, the confusion that I experienced as I was traveling along the class ladder and, you know, making these unusual discoveries and, I also tell the story of my close friends and how their lives ended up and how those like that's the expected outcome of someone who grew up the way that we did. Um, if you were to just sort of predict, oh, how, you know, like my life is not like it's far from the expected outcome. And and like that's that's the reason why I get to write a book. Right. Like, you know, no one's going to give my friends a book deal. Very few, I mean, you know, I mean, it's funny, like there are lots of books written by people who went to fancy colleges and like lived pretty good lives and like somehow they still get book deals, even though they're telling the same story that's been told over and over, but okay. Um, <laughs> we need to understand like, this better. <laughs> yes. But like, no one's going to give my friends a book and that's fine. Like they're not going to write a book. Like that's okay. But like, I, it was important to me to like tell those stories too, to like understand that my friends we're never going to like go to a college or whatever, but like they didn't have to go to prison. They didn't have to like one of my friends, right. you know, he didn't have to end up shot to death. Um, but they were also like doing the same dumb things I was doing. We're all making poor decisions and it's possible to make fewer of those poor decisions and like to like incrementally improve your life a little bit. Um, but then as far as like true social, like, of course, like I cite statistics in my book about like the difference between like, even if you have, so if you have two people who went to the same college, whatever, like everything is the same. They sort of had the same experience in college, graduated and so on. But one of them is a continuing generation student, meaning they had at least one parent who went to college and the other is a first generation student. Um, if you fast forward through the uh, trajectory of their careers, the continuing generation student is going to earn more money even though they, you know, on paper, they're the same, oh, they both got a degree and they both went to the same school. 
Because if you have a parent who went to college and you have a more sort of comfortable upbringing, you're going to know how to like apply for jobs and how to interact with people and how to sort of navigate um, sort of upper middle class organizational structures and who to speak with and how to schmooze and, you know, like whatever, like, like keep your eye out for like which dinners and which kinds of events to go to and who you should be monitoring and interacting with and knowing like that piece of advice I got from the law school guy, like every interaction come away with something. You're not just there to socialize. And like, you're not taught that when you grow up poor working class. Um, and so, you know, there are limitations there too. And then like, you know, the, the question I, I, I thought you were asking uh, is like, can you truly transcend your class origins? Can you truly be accepted by a different class? And I don't, I, mm -hmm. I don't, I don't really think so. I mean, mm -hmm. You can kind of fake it a little bit. Like for me, I can kind of do okay now, like in these environments, but like little things will still give you away. You can kind of tell like, you know, but it's, I think it goes both ways, you know, like there's, there's downward, I mean, there's downward mobility in the sense that like, there are rich kids who grow up and like are far less successful than their parents because they grew up too comfortable and like, didn't have that itch or right. that ambition or what have you. So that happens too. Like, I don't, I don't, I would never say that being born wealthy is a disadvantage. I think that's silly. Oh, they're going to grow up without, you know, you know I, I, without ethics. Yeah. Without <laughs> ethics, whatever. But like most people would rather their kids grow up with means than without. Um, but there are people who experience that kind of downward mobility, but even they, it's weird. Like I, I've spoken with some of these people and they also have this strange difficulty. Like if you slip from upper or upper middle down into like middle or working class, um, because they just couldn't get it together or like flunked out of their dad's company or whatever. And like, they literally can't get hired because they don't know how to work. And so then they end up just taking a menial job somewhere or, you know, just, you know, whatever, like being a part-time musician or getting a job as a bartender because like, they don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. Like they also feel like out of place and people look at them like they're weird. Like, Oh, like, didn't you grow up rich? Like, why are you working at a bar or whatever? Like they just, you know, they're just like trying to find something to do in their life. Um, and so, yeah, if you're born in a certain environment and you learn the habits and the mannerisms and the speech patterns and all those things, um, you never fully shed it, right? Like it's yeah. regardless of which direction, if you travel up versus traveling down, people are just like not going to fully like accept you. And, you know, I'm, I'm learning to, to deal with that too, because, mm. you know, it works both ways where like now if I go back home or speak to some of my friends from high school or whatever, like it's also weird because, you know. Like we, our lives took very different turns. Yeah. And so you mentioned, you know, you of course did get a book deal. Um, and you've told a story that I have not heard told very often at all. Um, and yet it seems like people or a certain group of people don't want to hear that story. So you've been sort of locked out of, of doing <laughs> book events. Yeah, that was weird. Uh, I basically got like frozen out of the book promo circuit, at least in New York really? and San Francisco and yeah. very unexpected. I mean, my, you know, I, the, the publicist responsible for my book promo stuff for my publisher, she was emailing, um, she was emailing these, you know, these kind of chic uh indie bookstores the big bookstores in new york and san francisco like months in advance like back in like late summer so this was like well in advance to be able to coordinate an event and every single one of them either declined some of them 
ignored her. She followed up with some of them and they ended up, you know, rejecting and turning it down. And yeah, then I looked at the events page for some of these bookstores and, you know, they're hosting authors with, you know, much smaller followings or much, or they're telling, you know, I mentioned like they're telling a story that's been told before or, but, you know, they, their book aligns with the kind of, you know, the messaging that people from the chattering classes like to hear, or it sort of flatters their sensibilities, or they're from, you know, they tick the right boxes in terms of identity. You know, they're you know, like, I, I, there's this big book that's getting a lot of rave reviews about the the Park Slope polyamorous mom. You know, right. you have I just, yeah, I just heard about that. You know, on and the she's, podcast the other day. <laughs> like, I, I don't know, like it's getting, you know, great reviews in, in prestige media and um, she's speaking at bookstores, she's doing the bookstore circuit. And I'm wondering, like, you know, the polyamorous mom thing, like that's, you know, like that's interesting, I guess. But OK, fine. But like I, I have no issue that they're talking that they would host her. But the fact that like they would host her, but then like not even consider my book as a possible, like, why not both of us? You know, like to tell yeah. them. But one of those is you know, that's what they they want to hear about. And the other, they're, they're unwilling to hear about. Well, and it's interesting too, because I mean, first of all, it's an interesting story. So you think that they would want to hear like a different, interesting story. Uh, your book is like, I've heard lots of people talking about your book, even people who haven't read it yet on podcasts and things like that. You do have a big following. Um, and I think you're well-respected in, in, me, I was going to say in media, but I suppose within the media that I follow and pay attention to. Yeah. Um, but I mean, these are the same people who purport to care a lot about marginalization and marginalized yes. people and marginalized populations. And you are objectively somebody who's come from very marginalized. It's not a perfect word, but, you know, you've come from hard, really hard circumstances is this not the exact, and you're of color, <laughs> you have another tick. <laughs> yes. So you, you know, you think that at least they would want to, you know, virtue signal that they're highlighting the story of this, this man who's, who's suffered in, in yeah. this world. I mean, yeah, like I, I thought long about this. I tried to understand it and I think, yeah, there's, there's kind of two things going on. One is if you write a book that flatters their sensibilities, then they'll accept it regardless of your class background. I think I could be wrong about this, but that's my sense. But then the other is class background definitely helps if you want to write about anything, um, regardless of the message of your book or what it contains. And so, you know, if I had the exact same life, but then I'm communicating about oppression and systemic injustices and privilege and luck and you know, whatever, like railing against the system in that way, in that very sort of, you know, in a language that that flatters the sensibilities of cultural elites. Um, I think that my book would probably be more welcome in the kind of boutique upscale bookstores. Um, on the other hand, if I had the same, like if I if I had grown up, what privileged, affluent, whatever, like, you know, if I had a whatever, like if my dad worked at the Atlantic and my mom was connected at the New York Times or whatever like that, if I lived that kind of life, but my ultimate message of the book was the same about instability and class divides and how we need to be focusing more on what's happening with, with deteriorating families and neighborhoods across the country and, mm -hmm. you know, sort of lampooning the hypocrisy of elites. Um, 
I think then my book would also be well received because I come from the right background, because I have, you know, my, my family is connected in the right sort of legacy media outlets. But I didn't have either one of those. I grew up the way that I grew up and the message is not favorable. And so I basically didn't meet either criteria. And so, you know, ultimately they decided not to, to host my book. And, you know, I thought I would have been honestly, you know, pat myself on the back a little bit. But I, I think like for someone like me, it would have been like the right kind of the right kind of author, because I'm in that kind of like middling category, right? Like, you know, if like Britney Spears had a memoir come out recently and she sold millions of copies, but like Britney Spears isn't going to speak at a bookstore. Um, and then, you know, there's like people who have like very small social media followings who did get invited to some of these bookstores, but like, they're probably not going to have like the hugest crowds turn up for them. But yeah. someone like me, I could like probably draw a hundred or 150 people into one of these places um which is like a good size i think for for like one of these bookstores and you know it would have been like a good sort of um venue for that kind of event and you know i've always loved bookstores you know when i was a kid i read a lot and i'd always you know just always enjoyed the the atmosphere of just sort of you know looking through books and being in that you know so yeah, it was it was tough. It was tough when I when I learned yeah. that that none of them wanted to to host me. But I mean, I'm very grateful, you know, because I, I wrote this Substack post about my experience and invited my readers to help me, you know, find somewhere to host an event. And people came through. And so I'll be doing an event in New York uh, at the Village Underground with Jesse Single, cool. and then another event in San Francisco at uh, some like venture capitalist office. Like they just offered me their office space and we're going to do an event there. And so, you know, people came through and I'm very grateful. Um, so, you know, I can't ultimately, you know, I can't, I can't complain that much, but yeah, it was just, um, you know, I wrote a book and these are bookstores and I can bring people out and uh, yeah, just, just a strange turn of events there. Yeah. It's really disappointing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was. But I think that your book is going to do very well nonetheless. Um, are you, can, where can people find out about these book events that you're doing? Um, are you going to be doing more book events? When are these events taking place in New York and San Francisco? Uh, the Village Underground thing is taking place on the book launch date, February 20th. Uh, and then the one in San Francisco is on March Seventh, we're still ironing out the, the like the details as far as time and um, whether they're going to be ticketed or not, and so on. So, uh, the best place would be to just uh, you know follow my Substack. Uh, you can subscribe or you can just check the websites at robkhenderson.com um, and on Twitter too, or X. I think we're supposed to call it uh, at robkhenderson, and you know I'll, I'll make uh, the official announcements with all the details and stuff um, soon. So, yeah. Okay. That would be a good place to end, but I have one more question. Yeah, of course. Um, <laughs> what, what do you think that the, the upper classes, the middle or the upper class, I want to say, in America misunderstands most about class difference or misunderstands most about the working class being poor? Yeah, I think they, they have, you know, there's this, when, you're, when you have money, and this is something I've experienced in my own life, is that everything just is um, easier. Uh, there's just less friction in your day-to-day -day existence if 
you know, there's something that needs to be repaired or an emergency expense or some, I'm sticking mostly to like economic class, like money related. And I mean, there's like sort of social and cultural issues too, but like the money related thing is, you know, life is just easier when you know, like if you have to like take an emergency flight somewhere or you have mm-hmm. to like, you know, like, be a, you know, like a family member is sick and you need to go and see them and this is going to cost money and so on, like just to be able to afford that. Um, and I think this can actually like, to some extent, it doesn't fully, but like helps to explain like, you know, like when you grow up poor, working class, you just become a little bit of a harder person. You have to be um, because, you know, when things are already quite difficult and then like any financial setback could be catastrophic, um, you know, it, it changes your mood. It changes your outlook. It just changes your sense of time, you know, your kind of long term horizons and goals. Because, you know, it's, it's hard to think long term when you like barely have enough money to get from paycheck to paycheck. I mean, I remember when I first moved out and I rented this house with some friends and, um, you know, like the just like just the shock of like, OK, so you have to pay first month's rent, last month's rent and a security deposit on top of all the other expenses that I had. And like basically that like that broke me and I was like down to like single digits in my bank account. And I needed a new belt and I couldn't buy a belt. And so I went two weeks without a belt until my next paycheck and like little things like that. It's like, it's a little bit kind of that sort of sense of, you know, like, like um, inadequacy or shame of like, man, this is like, life is. and then if anything else had happened, I wouldn't have been able to, to afford it. And so this changes, you know, your mood and your outlook and emotions and everything. Yeah. And I think this, you know, this is something I think like it's it's one thing to just sort of imagine, oh, I couldn't afford that or it would it would be hard if I couldn't go on vacation or whatever. But then also just the sort of day to day setbacks and that constant sort of gnawing fear of like, you know, what if an emergency were to arise and how do I handle this? And then I think like the other thing would be and then I, I dwell on this at length in the book is just like the vast difference in family structures where almost everyone who goes to college or has parents who went to college like that kind of middle and upper, you know, middle and above that segment of society, just about everyone is raised by two parents. Um, Whereas people without college degrees, working class and the poor more and more, I mean, it, it used to be quite common among the poor single parenthood, but now more and more among sort of working class, lower middle class families are becoming like, are, are also kind of deteriorating over time and how, you know, money is one sort of piece of the puzzle, but then there's there's something else going on too, where more and more kids are are winding up in these very kind of deprived, like not just financially, but also kind of emotionally and socially deprived circumstances. Um, because a kid needs, like a small child needs a lot of care and it helps to have two parents around. And there's, you know, there's, I, I know there are single parents, I, I'm friends with them and I know them from when I, where I grew up and they you know, they uh, put heroic efforts in to raise their kids and I admire it. But, you know, when you're working and you're trying to make ends meet and there's only so much you can do as a single person it just to have someone else there. Um, I think that's also to some extent playing a role. And, you know, a lot of the sort of behaviors and, you know, a lot of like a lot of the stuff that I described that I was getting involved with when I was a kid and, and my friends, too. It's just, um, you know, unstable families are not like a recipe for long-term success for, for young children. Yeah. I remember sort of realizing when I was younger, maybe, you know, in my early twenties or very late teens or something like that, that when my friends said, 
that they were broke or couldn't afford something, it meant a completely different thing than what I meant when I said that, which was like I had zero dollars. <laughs> <laughs> and meanwhile, yeah. they didn't want to like dip into their savings or something. Oh, yeah, like yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> oh, that's, yeah, that's, that's such a big difference. It's a weird, yeah, yeah, that's so, that's so, yeah. Because I, I heard that, I heard that surprisingly often. Uh, in college or around, you know, young professionals, like oh, and it's yeah, they don't want to, you know, they have different, they have different bank accounts. First of all, yeah, it's like oh, it's like I don't want to dip into this, or I don't want to have to transfer money, or yeah, yeah. You know, in yeah. college, it was you know, I only get a certain amount of stipend from my parents, and I could ask them for more. I just you know, I kind of don't want to, and it's like, yeah. what a life, you know, yeah, yeah. different. Um. It was really great to talk with you. I'm so glad that we were able to connect. Um, and again, I, I loved your book. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show people again. Um, so it's out on February 20th. And yes. where can people find it? Uh, yeah, you can find it wherever you buy books. You can go to Amazon or uh, wherever wherever else fine books are sold. I narrated the audiobook myself. Uh, and so, yeah, if you prefer that um, way of, of reading, then yeah, get the, get the audiobook. I really appreciate you taking the time and I hope that we'll get the chance to connect again in the future. Thank you, Megan. Yeah, I really enjoyed this. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. You too. I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. Thank you for tuning in. I produce and host this podcast all by myself and rely on individual donors to sustain my work. This is all me and you, the listener. If you want to keep episodes free as well as free thinking, please consider signing up on Patreon at patreon.com slash Megan Murphy, subscribing on Substack at www.meganmurphy.ca, or by donating directly to support the podcast via PayPal at paypal.me slash the same drugs. Every little bit counts and ensures I can stay independent. Thank you so much for supporting Conversations Outside the Algorithm.